Okay, I want to start off playing a game. All right? Name that logo. All right? So we're gonna, I'm going to just put one on the screen one at a time, and you guys can just shout out what the logo is. Okay, cool. Next one. Cool. That's good. Next one. Okay. Oh, you guys got that, eh? That was cool. Okay, that's good. Pizza Hut. So now I'm going to name some companies, and I want you to shout out the logo. Nike. Well, I heard swoosh, but what did you guys say over here? Oh, checkmark, checkmark. Okay. Uh, McDonald's. Starbucks. Yeah, weird lady on the boat type of thing. Nobody knows how to say it. Now, this is going to be a really hard one. Apple. No, she's... Uh, I know that's cheesy. I just had to include it. Um, so if, think about this. If Christianity had a logo, if Christianity had a logo, what would it be? A cross. And uh, I'm going to come back to this question later on. We're, we're in a series called the, the Apostles' Creed, and we've been walking through this, um, this document that's been around for 2,000 years almost in its, in its uh, kind of form that we read it today. And we've, we've been in this series for a few weeks now, just trying to get a glimpse of allowing this document to be a window back into the scriptures to get us rooted in our faith. And uh, I want to read just the middle section of the creed today with us, and not the whole thing, and then we're going to focus on a couple of lines. So let's just read this part of the creed. It's the second section that focuses on Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Here's the second part of the creed. The creed is split into three sections. The first section on God the Father, the second section on God the Son, and the third section on God the Spirit and the outflow of the church and how the Spirit works in our lives. And it's interesting as we read this this section, and I want to read specifically um, uh, one line from it, but the cross doesn't come up, right? If I said if Christianity has a logo, we all said cross, And the cross doesn't come up in this section, but the line we're focusing on today describes what happened on the cross. And it's this one line uh, in the middle of that. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Obviously referring to Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. The cross isn't mentioned here. It's not mentioned in this section. And yet, it's the overwhelming response to what a, a logo would be for Christianity. And interesting, you know, this question probably came up starting the second or third century and maybe even comes up today in conversation. Did Jesus really die on the cross? You know, as time passed on from people that were eyewitnesses to people who were friends or relatives of eyewitnesses to people who maybe were within a distance of a hundred years of when Jesus' death occurred, sometimes people started to wonder and ask questions. What really happened? Did the cross really take place? Did Jesus really get crucified there? And so today I want to kind of walk through this question of both the proof of the cross and also the purpose of it. Like, did it happen? And then why did it happen? And it, interestingly enough, in this creed, only three people are mentioned. I mean, besides 
God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus, who was a physical person, lived with us. Mary is mentioned. And then we read here, Pontius Pilate, the only other person mentioned in this creed. And now if, if this creed is a summary of Christian faith or a shorthand for belief in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if it's a paragraph that would shape and teach people um, what it means to know God, believe in God, even follow God, why Pilate? Why not somebody else? Why not the Apostle Paul? Why not Stephen, who was a martyr of the faith? Why not Peter, who preached the first sermon after Pentecost? Why not these other names? But Pontius Pilate gets in the creed. And when you think about that, it just makes you wonder, like, what was the importance of getting his name in this creed that would be repeated over and over and over again for centuries? So who's Pontius Pilate? We're not going to read uh, extensive scripture around it because there's too much scripture to read. Uh, you know, we'd be reading two chapters as a whole this morning and more. But Pontius Pilate gets a lot of press in the Gospels. Specifically, if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to read John 18 and 19 to see how he fits into the, to the narrative, the passion narrative leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He gets a lot of press in the Gospels. He's mentioned by the Apostle Paul in one of his letters referring to the cross. But who was Pontius Pilate? He was the one who ended up being given the decision to either pursue Jesus' innocence or turn him over to crucifixion. He was a Roman aristocrat. He was appointed by the emperor Tiberius in the first century. From AD 26 to AD 36, he was the prefect of Judea. He was, he was overseeing this region under the Roman Empire. And some people called him a thug in a toga, kind of like for the Romans. But historians didn't speak to all of him. King Agrippa said that he was merciless and inflexible. Uh, Philo, who was a, a historian at the time, mentions how he was, he was just connected to briberies and insults and outrages. Uh, Josephus um, was one who mentioned uh, stories of him, how he forced Rome's standards on the Jewish people in Judea. There's a story that Josephus tells us where he stole money from the Jewish temple to fund the aqueduct system in Rome. So imagine like a Montreal uh, politician stealing money from the church to fix the sewage system. That's kind of basically what, what he did. And he, he kind of forced himself upon uh, the Jewish people of the time in that area. The Gospels were a little bit more sympathetic to him because he stood in, in this moment of, of time when Jesus is led to the cross and he's in an opportunity to engage with both the Jewish people, Christ followers, and the moment of Christ's crucifixion. The Gospels were more sympathetic to him because he was maybe seemed inquisitive to them. When Jesus speaks about truth in their conversation, you know, Pilate says, what is truth? That's one of Pilate's famous sayings. What is truth? And it rings, it echoes through time, that question. What is truth? He, he'd actually... Though he was described in a negative way from cultural historians, he challenged the Jews, the Jewish charges against Jesus. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, and, and Pilate actually challenged them and said, are you sure you want to do this? I haven't found anything wrong with this man. 
Are you sure you want to do this? Pilate believed Jesus was innocent. At least it seems he did. His wife even had a dream overnight that an innocent man was going to be killed, and she shared it with his wife, and that freaked him out even more because he thought, what are we doing? Who are we sending to crucifixion? And under his authority, which he was the only one who maybe could do this, he actually got a a, a title printed up that would go on the cross. And it bothered the Jews at the time because the the title said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate made that happen. Pilate got that title nailed onto the cross so people could see that. So when the gospel writers tell us about the account of Jesus' death, it's interesting. If you read through John's portion, you actually find out more about Pilate than what an actual crucifixion is. Part of that is because crucifixion was not a very nice thing. And the gospel writers, unlike Mel Gibson necessarily, didn't go into it fully, you know? Um, but why'd Pilate get so much press? Because Pilate was a historical figure that other historians talked about. He gave the cross a time and a place. It happened under his watch, under a Roman leader's watch. And it's written and etched in the history books that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. It's important because it places Jesus in a very historical moment. But questions still come up because that's why people have asked the question, did Jesus really die on a cross? Did he really get crucified? Did Rome really have a hand in it? Did the Jewish leaders really want Jesus dead? And Pilate helps answer the question, not just for the first followers, they knew it happened, but for people who were hearing the story and hearing what happened and invited into the message of Jesus Christ, Pilate's part in there seemed to help people understand, oh, this, was, this really happened. Michael Byrd, uh, he's, a, he's a theologian. He says, the crucifixion is the single uncontested fact of Jesus' life. The single uncontested fact of Jesus' life. In fact, it's the only line in the creed that atheists can confess with a full mind. <laughs> they can say, this happened. We know what happened. It's historical. It took place. When you think about where it, how it's written in the Gospels and these actual texts that are written in, we have this historicity of the Gospels that are un, like unmatched by even other writings of the time. You know that people like Caesar and Plato wrote and, or their, their, their lives are written about about a thousand years after they existed. Thousand years after they existed, people like Caesar and Plato were written about. And maybe seven, ten, or twelve copies of their life or their biographies was, was circulate or around. They found historically uh, in that. The New Testament was written 25 to 50 years, not a thousand, 25 to 50 years after the life of Jesus. All right? And you know how many copies of New Testament fragments were found? Not 12, not 1,200, not 12,000, 24,000 fragments of New Testament documents were found. And they were written within 25 to 50 years of Jesus' life and death and ministry and teachings. Why do I include that? Because I include that with Pilate and how the world knew who Pilate was and knew what was going on because I wanted to just bring this idea about for us today. Why the creed includes Pilate? Because you can't dehistorize the cross. You can't revise it like revisionist history. You have to just, you have to just kind of state it actually happened. And Pilate points us 
to the proof of that and all the things that surround him and the writings that surround him. It happened. It actually happened. You can't dehistorize the fact that the cross took place, that Jesus was crucified on a cross. But it didn't only happen. It meant something. It had a purpose. There wasn't just proof that it happened. There was a purpose around why it happened. You got your Bibles. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 to 24. And um, it's an amazing text that the Apostle Paul later looks back to this moment in, uh, in, in what happened at the cross. L- listen to what he says. He says, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In other words, Paul recognizes not everybody grasps this. Some people think it's foolishness. But through this foolishness, right, was preached to save those who believe. Then verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Kind of just categorizing, um, you know, how they, how they search for meaning. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ who died on a cross. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's these two pieces here that, that we find that when Paul looks back to the cross, when Paul looks back to this crucifixion, we know it happened. But the meaning of it makes Jews stumble and Gentiles or Greeks or Romans think like, this is foolish, this is weird, right? Jews looked for signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. And for the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. For the Greeks or the Gentiles, it was foolishness. Why is it a stumbling block for the Jews? The Jews believed that crucifixion was a curse, that anybody who would hang on a tree was actually cursed. And it's part of their story. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 to 23, it says, cursed is the person who hangs on a tree. So in their own story, in their own understanding, anybody who hangs on a cross is cursed. So in their mind, they're thinking, how can God's Messiah get crucified? That would mean God's, God's Messiah is cursed. Or most of they would say, how could God show his faithfulness to Israel? How could God show his faithfulness to us by killing who they think is the Messiah? Why would God do that? Why would God do something that would curse that person or represent his curse or our curse and then we call it his faithfulness? Or even worse, they would believe if the Messiah is cursed, then maybe we're cursed. And this was a stumbling block for them. If the Messiah would be crucified in, in some way, even metaphorically, symbolically, so is Israel being crucified. So the Jews looked at the cross and said, even though it really happened, they looked and said, this, is, this makes us stumble. We don't get this. To the Greeks and Romans, it was foolishness. Why does Paul say that? Because crucifixion was rooted in a, in a barbarian invention. This barbarian invention that Rome adopted for its worst criminals. For its worst criminals. And so when, when we understand crucifixion, see the gospels don't give us the full picture. They just tell us it happened. But if you look historically, it was a gruesome act It was bloody and painful and horrific to watch. In fact, Cicero says it was the most cruel and disgusting kind of punishment. Yet God allows, even sends his son to be crucified. 
And the Greeks and the Romans are thinking, this is foolish. Like, this is silly to us. It was silly to Rome that these Christians worshipped a crucified God. Why would you do that? We want to worship a hero God, not a crucified God. Pliny the Younger, who was around, uh, his father was also, him and his father were both mentioned during the times of Pompeii and when Pompeii was destroyed by the volcano. He said that, like, what's this strange superstition that these Christians believe? That their God has been crucified. One Roman writer said, the religion of the Christians is insane. They worship a crucified man and they worship the instrument of punishment itself. There was graffiti in the second century on this place called Palatine Hill. You know, I mean, we do graffiti in one way today, but they had kind of graffiti in their own way. And it was a man on a cross with a donkey's head. What, was the, what do you think the message was saying? These crazy Christians, this is what they worship. It does strike the modern mind a little strange. I mean, I was thinking of Martin Luther King's assassination. And I did some digging. Imagine they glorified the weapon. I found out that allegedly it was a Remington rifle, 30-06 rifle. That was in the police documents. So imagine like these people who adored Martin with, uh, you know, MLK and said, hey, I'm going to, you know, this is, this, he, he represents so much good for me. Uh, he started the civil rights movement. He's, you know, revered in history. Not necessarily worship, but you know what? We're going to start kind of wearing little rifles around our neck. It w- wouldn't it be strange? It's like, let's get all those keychains with Remington rifles on them and kind of like acknowledge Martin Luther King, you know? It kind of seems strange to the modern mind and even back then to the Romans and to the Greeks. And it's still questioned today. Gandhi said he respected Jesus as a great teacher. He even said the death of Jesus is such an example of great sacrifice. This is what Gandhi said. But he said, but he could not accept the miraculous virtue of it. He struggled with it. What was the point of it? Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And he says that as a pastor in New York, you know, such a diverse crowd in New York City, over 11 million people and so on. He said that he gets questioned more often about the reason for Jesus' death than the actual existence of God when he talks to everyday New Yorkers. Because there was something about the cross that the Jews stumbled over and the Romans thought were foolish. And even the modern mind today thinks, was there really something miraculous to it? Pilate shows us proof that it happened, but we need to move to the purpose of it. It wasn't just history. It was actually part of God's story or his story with a play on words. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where where Paul says this. He says, we preach Christ crucified, right? He says, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But Paul recognizes the power in this moment. And he says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified, he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, we preach Christ crucified and it demonstrates the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's part of the purpose of the cross. We see God's power. We see God's wisdom. In other words, God did something so powerful through the cross Something incredibly great was accomplished. While some people missed its significance, while some stumbled over it or some thought it was foolish or some could not see 2,000 years later the miraculous moment in it, God's wisdom was on display for the world. 
Something powerful happened at the cross. N.T. Wright says uh, uh, the, the day started a brand new revolution, that God started to move in such a powerful way through the death of his son. Not just the resurrection, through the death of his son. In fact, when Pilate's having a conversation with, Pete, with, um, with Jesus, and he asks him, you know, people say you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds and says, my kingdom is not of this world. Turns to Pilate and says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were so, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if all that you see in front of you was only what you see, me walking to a cross, my buddies would be preventing my arrest because they would stop me from getting crucified. But my kingdom's of another world. In fact, he has a conversation with Pilate later on, and, and, and uh, Pilate says, why, do you, why, do you, why are you okay with this, in other words? Read John 19, and Jesus says, you think you're in control here? God knows what's going on here, and this moment is meant to happen. This moment is meant to happen, and it points to the fact that Jesus is fully aware that something bigger is at stake that God's kingdom that's not of this world is, is being ushered in partly through the death of his own son. That God's kingdom demonstrates its strength differently than the world demonstrates it, right? If it was the same way, then Jesus could have just rallied people and said, let's topple Rome, let's, let's get them out of the picture, let's set up our kingdom here. But the cross demonstrates that God's strength is shown differently. He shows us another way. And it actually included Jesus dying under Roman rule. Here's the difference between Martin Luther King's death and Jesus. I I really appreciate Martin Luther King. And back in January, there's an anniversary date to remember his importance in, in our society. So vital. Martin Luther King died, and he, he, rallied, he really rallied people even more around civil rights, which is important for us. But his death did not do anything miraculous. His death didn't categorically change somebody's heart. His death didn't usher in something God specifically is, uh, you know, is doing for the rest of eternity. There's a difference between a really good man dying and Jesus' death on the cross, God sending his only son to be crucified under the world's authority. And here's the twist in God's purpose. Here's the twist in the moment. Because as the Jews said, this is a stumbling block to me. This is a curse. This can't be happening. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse um, 13. Actually, let's just read it from here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeems us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying Christ redeemed something in his death that though the curse is true, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. He's also letting us know that under the law, people are cursed. The Jews were cursed. But he says in verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might become for the Gentiles through Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Something happened at the cross where Jesus, though he, he dies under, in a sense, that curse, he, he takes that in and frees us from that curse. 
What happens is, is that Jesus redeems everyone under that curse by becoming a curse. The Messiah died under the curse to free Israel from that curse. So where the Jews thought it was a stumbling block, what actually happened is they were, they were given the opportunity to be freed from being under the law and under the curse of death. And the opportunity to become what they were always meant to be, a light to the nations. So the whole world would be welcomed to know Jesus, to know God, to know his love. Look at how Paul tells us in Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And one more from, from 1 Corinthians where um, we read this actually, 2 Corinthians verse 5. God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, the one who's never sinned, falls under the curse of sin to free us from sin. That's God's twist in this story. And Jesus knows that he's part of this story. Jesus knows that he's fulfilling God's story, that he's fulfilling God's plan and purpose. Look what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus knows that this is his purpose and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows that he's fulfilling this story. In fact, it goes way back to Isaiah 53. And I just clipped a few verses from uh, Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6, and I just want to read some of them for you. This is said 900 years before Jesus. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is living out this story. Jesus knows he's living out this story. Jesus is walking to the cross because he knows God has something in store through the cross. Look what he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 32. He's explaining to his disciples. He's, he says that he then began to teach that them that the Son of Man, look at the word he uses, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rises again. In other words, Jesus knows the story he's living. Jesus knows the purpose he has. Jesus knows that there's purpose in the suffering he's going to endure on the cross. Louis Gilio said this just this last week, and I I read this quote from him. He said, I have to believe that Jesus believed that Jesus was the way to salvation. I know that's a little trip up on words. I have to believe that Jesus believed that Jesus was the way to salvation. You don't suffer crucifixion's death to be one of many options. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus knew what he was going to walk through. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this. 
says, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. By his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Came across this story of a family who was going on a trip and uh, there's a, a father and mother in the front seat and two kids in the back. One's a boy, one's a girl. And uh, a, there's a bee in the car. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, I have a little phobia with bees. I, if, don't be near me if there's a bee. You're going to get hit because I'm going to just like kind of freak out. And especially if I'm like cutting my grass with a whipper and a bee comes, just be, don't be like anywhere like 10 feet near me. I had this, when I was a kid, I was playing under the veranda of my house and there was all, I was under the branches, like it was prickly trees. You know, those like, I don't know why my parents planted those kind of bushes. They just hurt like crazy if you were near them. But I was under the veranda and a bee bites me on the knee while all these trees are over me. And I, I got even more hurt because I freaked out. So since that time, I've just been freaked out about bees. Anyways, on to this story, because this is better. This bee's in the car. But the girl in the back seat is allergic to bees. In fact, it's fatal for her. If she gets stung by a bee, it could be fatal. So they're freaking out. The father's driving. He turns back. He, he, he sees the bee. He grabs it. He's able to get it in his hand. He brings it to the front seat. He endures the sting and crushes it. I don't know if I... Man, I think I would do that if my daughter was going to die. Um, but... <laughs> Sorry, Julia. <laughs> so the dad takes the bee. He, it, he lets it sting it in, its, in his palm and then crushes it. I mean, when you think about this, this is ultimately in such a much more beautiful, bigger, cosmic way, Jesus takes on the curse of sin and death and brokenness in the world and he dies with it so we will be saved so we will be spared so we will have life and he didn't do it just so people go to heaven he did it because humanity is plagued with brokenness and sin and part of that sin part of the implications of that sin is that we do not get to know all of God's glory and goodness and grace and so he wanted to He did something about that so we can fully come to know God. And all this is fulfilling God's story, his story. The climax of his story, the vindication of God's story is actually the cross where Jesus dies and is crucified for you and me. So when the the church chooses a logo, right? When Christianity finds its logo, they had a few options. Jesus was born in a manger, you could have a little manger hanging from your necklace. Um, Jesus grew up, uh, you know, with a carpenter's bench. He's known as the carpenter, his ordinary life. I mean, maybe it's just a piece of wood that becomes the image of Christianity. There was a cup that, you know, was re- resemblance with the cup um, when they had the Last Supper together. There was the cup he referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, the cup would have been a good logo for Christianity. I think a tombstone would have been a good uh, logo or the, or the stone covering the tomb that was you know, moved away when Jesus was resurrected because it reflects that, right? So maybe a stone could have been a great logo. There was, a, there was um, an image in the early church that was very common to Christians. It was a fish. And so often you know, a Christian would draw a fish on the ground and another person would know that they're a believer, 
And sometimes they'd even draw half the fish and I'd come along and say, I think they maybe are followers of Jesus. And I'd draw the other half of the fish and we're like, oh, awesome, we're believers. I just knew that and at least you're not going to kill me. And so, so, so the fish was part of that. But one of the reasons the fish was this symbol is in Greek the word ictus, re- reflecting the fish is I-C-T-H-S. And I is Jesus, Jesus, and C is Christos, Christ, and C is Theos, God, and H is holy, and S is Savior. So the fish became a symbol for Christians in the early church. It was a beautiful symbol. Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is holy and Savior. I mean, that would be an awesome logo. But the cross became the main representation of Christianity. Because Jesus was crucified on a cross. And at the cross, God's vindication, God's climax, God's victory actually takes place. It was a stumbling block to Jews, although many Jews came to faith. And they surpassed that stumbling block through the revelation of the Spirit. It was foolishness to Romans and Greeks, but many Romans and Greeks did come to know Jesus and follow him and recognize that it was God's wisdom. It has stumped modern minds, but many people in the modern world, Christianity is growing like crazy all over the world. We get stumped a little bit more on the western side of the world. Um, But people are coming to know who Jesus is. The cross has become the, the symbol of our faith. John Stott said, there is then no Christianity without a cross. There is no Christianity without a cross. There could be Christianity without a fish symbol. There could be Christianity without some of the other symbols. There would never be Christianity without the cross of Jesus. That's the heart of our faith. Pilate's Pilate's mention in this creed tells us this really happened but then as we go on to read about the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus, we know God did something there. Here's a couple of things before we wrap this up just to take home. And maybe in a couple of minutes I'll have the band come up and we want to end with a song together. But what else is this for you? I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's our faith. Jesus died on the cross. He conquered sin and death. And we can be saved and know God and be transformed into his image and have the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us. And as N.T. Wright said, it was the day the revolution began. It's the day when God started to unleash his power and his, and his might through his spirit in the world. But it was also a sign. What is this? It's a sign of God's love for you and me. The cross is Jesus' self-giving love for you and me. Remember, we've been asking this question in this series. What is God like? And we said, Jesus shows us who God is like. And Jesus on the cross shows us God's self-giving love. The cross is a sign of God's self-giving love. The cross is also a pointing to suffering. Jesus suffered on the cross for you and me. That's, that's humanity's deepest question at times. Why do I suffer? And how can I suffer? And how can I get past this suffering? I know sometimes we want to you know, completely erase suffering from the equation. And I'm going to talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the reign of Jesus. Why do we still suffer in our world? Why do Christians still suffer if God is so powerful? We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But at the very, just the, just the moment of this is the biggest question that often people face is why do I suffer? And how can I overcome suffering? And at the cross, we, we recognize that Jesus suffered. God suffered. He suffered. He, he suffered 
for us and it demonstrates that he can suffer with us. Tim Keller tells a story of a woman in New York City who is listening to him talk about how sometimes God works good out of bad things. And she, she goes up to him at the end of the message and she's like, hey, listen, Mr. Keller, that's a nice story, but that's one out of ten stories. Nine out of ten stories, suffering never turns to good, and that's my life. My husband died in a car accident when I was young. My kids, two of them are sick physically. One of them is sick mentally. And none of that is turned to good. You tell me, Mr. Keller, how you can say that God turns good or bad into good. That's a real question. And the, the point is, is not that the cross will provide every reason for every painful experience we have. That's not the point of this. But it does provide a way through it. And it does help us understand when we say, where is God in all of this? God put himself on the hook of suffering at the cross. When we suffer, oh, it'd be so amazing to erase all of that. It'd be so amazing to avoid all of that. But the cross and I'm going to leave you hanging with this for how we talk about this further in a couple of weeks, but the cross demonstrates that God suffered for us and God suffers with us. And we can know he suffers with us because he already suffered for us at the cross. So it's not just a sign of God's self-giving love. It is. It's, it's also a demonstration of his very own suffering and how we can walk through suffering because he's gone through suffering. And he knows exactly what we feel and how we feel. And this last uh, little piece before we, we wrap it up is, you know, this idea of, of sides, choosing sides. Here's Pilate, right? Man, he's there and he's, he's confronted with the people he kind of has authority over as the Roman prefect in the region of Judea. The Jews are saying, hey, we want you to crucify this Jesus. We think he's a, he's a criminal because of this, this, and that. And Pilate thinks he's innocent, and Pilate is put to the corner. He doesn't, he's not sure what to do. And you see him wrestling as you read through the story that, that he, know, he believes he's innocent. And even at the very end, when he challenges them two or three times, and he says, are you sure? I find no reason to, to crucify this person. I have no reason to convict him. But he, and he gives them the choice, and, he, and they say, crucify him. And he, he goes with the people. And, and, you know, we want to just put the blame on Pilate. Like, Pilate, you're, I mean, come on, Pilate. Why didn't you choose better? Son of God was right in front of you, Pilate. What are you worried about the crowd? But that's you and me. We're often put in a corner and, and forced to choose sides. And, and, and in, in our heart of hearts, we know that there's con- this conviction in us and we want to live up to it. But then there's this temptation to just appease the crowds. You guys feel that if you're a student here, you feel that in high school, you feel that that as 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 a teenager, if you're a young adult, if you're uh, single or married or have kids or at work or whatever, you feel that tension where there's this moment you feel this conviction. I know I should do this. I know I know God's leading me to this. I I, I know I can trust the authority of Jesus. He says this is the best way. But then there's this. You're in a corner. You're like, what do the crowds think? And I think the cross demonstrates to us, especially with Pilate, that there is an opportunity, in a sense, to choose sides. Am I going to live up to this conviction, or am I going to follow the crowds? God's sign of his self-giving love, his suffering, and an opportunity to follow his way. 
but, as, but ultimately, as we wrap this up, it's really the heart of salvation, right? That Jesus died on the cross for your salvation, for my salvation. Sometimes we don't get it, though. Sometimes we look at the world and we, with our rationale and with our reason and, our, and all the philo- philosophical thinking we can have, and we're like, really? And of course, there's moments in our hearts we recognize, I'm broken, I'm sinful. There's burdens I carry, I can't carry my own. There's a wall between the kind of life God longs for me to live and what I'm living. There's, there's often, there's this wall between me wanting to know who God is or experiencing him, and you know that there's something there, and that's the brokenness and the reality of sin. There's a story that a Catholic bishop shared of um, these three teens one day. They're joking. They, they, want, they come into the Catholic church and, and they, they, they kind of want to play a joke. And these three teenagers walk in and they, they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go in the confessional and we're going to tell like crazy outrageous stories and see what the priest does. They're going to make up all these crazy stories of all these things that they did. And so one by one, uh, they go in and they, they start telling these outrageous things, you know, like just the craziest kind of worst things possible. And the, the priest is not dumb he's been around a while he's like i know what these guys are doing so he listens to them and the first one leaves the second one leaves and they, they laugh as they leave the door and the third one's doing the same thing just sharing these crazy stories the sec- the two of them are gone and the last one's left there and the priest is able to just kind of like stop him from leaving and says wait you know for all these things that you've done i'm gonna ask you to do some penance <laughs> and he's like can you walk to the other side of the church there's this picture of Jesus. He's on the cross. All I want you to do is just go to the back of the church. Look at Jesus' face. Just look at Jesus' face and three times say, you did all that for me. Care very much. Just do that. That's all I want you to do. So the kid's like, great, I'll do that. So he walks to, the, to this picture. He looks at Jesus' face, face a little bit with defiance and says, I know you did all that for me, but I don't care very much. And he's like, I can hack this. You know, this picture has nothing on me. Looks again. I know all that you did for me, but I don't care very much. It's like, okay, one more time. And he goes to do it the third time. And he can't say the words. And he starts to tear. And he starts to weep. And he starts to recognize, what am I doing? And he starts to really recognize his own brokenness, his own sinfulness. And the archbishop says that the reason he knows that story is because he was that young kid. He was that young kid. And in that moment, he recognized what Jesus did for him on the cross. John Stott says, before we see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. In other words, before we see the cross as something done for us, where we say, I put my faith in you, Jesus, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to give you everything. Before we see the cross as something done for us, we must recognize it as something that was done by us, which leads us to repentance. Says, I am broken. I am a sinner. But it's in that moment, just like in this story, that something about the cross comes alive, that something about Jesus dying there for which just passes over theory and, you know, high theological talk and philosophical talk and even proof. And in that moment, you grasp, grasp something. Somehow we sense that what we are grasping is the very love of God for you and me. That's what we 
need to grasp at the cross. God's very love for you and me that he sent his son in a moment in history to die under the curse of Roman rule to free us. That's God's love for us. It happened. It was historical. But beyond that, it happened for you. It happened for me. Let's stand as we close in prayer. And I want to give you a moment in your own way, in a sense, to look to the face of Jesus, to look to the cross of Jesus. And, and maybe part of you wants to be like that, that teenager, right? Hey, I know what you did for me, but I don't care very much. And you know what? If that's what your heart says this morning, tell God. God's not afraid of your defiance. God's not worried about your questions. But let's pause for a moment and and ask the Lord to help us grasp the incredible self-giving love that happened through the suffering of Christ for you and for me. I invite you to speak to God on your own for a few moments before I pray. Maybe some of you this morning are feeling led towards repentance as you think about this. What Christ did for you. And in a sense, what we as humanity did to him. Leading to repentance basically means coming to Christ. Saying, Lord, I acknowledge, I acknowledge that I've been walking my whole life turning away from you. Acknowledging that there is no solution for my brokenness, for my sinfulness, but what you've done on the cross for me. And embracing that truth. And recognizing he did do it for you. And you are grateful. you even in this moment just tell that to Jesus God we are just pause here at the end of this gathering Lord, we thank you that the cross of Christ actually happened. We thank you for the wisdom of your spirit working through your church as they told the story of the week leading up to Jesus' death and included 
this Roman prefect that got way more popular than any other Roman of the time for the last 2,000 years. But Lord, in your wisdom, Lord, to help those who just need to know that this was a true event. Thank you, God. It happened. We thank you, Lord, not just for its proof, but for its purpose. What you have done for us, God. We say thank you. And may we be the kind of Christ followers that live out the power of the cross, that live out a self-giving life, that experience your grace and courage in times of suffering, that lean towards the sides of conviction and not the crowds, and that live a life of worship because of the salvation we have received because of your self-loving, self-giving act of love on the cross. God, in Christ's name, in Christ's name we pray. We bless you. Amen.